Uh, Romans chapter 1, if you would with me this morning. Romans chapter 1, I'd encourage you to grab a copy of the notes for the message today as well, as we're in our third message in the book of Romans, and the theme is good news for a broken world. We had that when we had the kids up here, we had the, the slide up on the screen, and my nephew, Maddie, yeah, I saw him sounding out those words and reading good news for a broken world, he said. And I said, yeah, you got that right. And I said, well, what's the good news? And he said, the Bible, he said. And I said, yeah, that's, that's right. So you got a good start there. So um, look at our theme verse, which is Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is really the theme, I think, of the whole book of Romans. Romans 1, 16 and verse 17. Let's read this out loud together. Ready? Begin. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so the way we're looking at this is, in this regard, while our experience tells us that something is not quite right with the world. And it causes us to question, why are things the way they are? Here in the book of Romans, God answers our questions with the gospel. When we read there the gospel of Christ, we know that that word gospel, it literally means the good news. It's the news that stops everything. It's the news that puts a smile on a face, the good news. Well, this morning we're going to move from verse 17 down to the end of the first chapter. And I'd like to speak to you this morning on this topic from this text, diagnosing our dilemma. Diagnosing our dilemma. You know, one of the most dangerous situations that you could ever find yourself in is a misdiagnosis. Now, I did some research, and apparently, as many, it is estimated that as, there are as many as 100,000 deaths in America every year due to misdiagnosis. If you've ever been the victim of a misdiagnosis, you know how frustrating, how scary, and how difficult, and even deadly it can be. Anybody ever experienced a misdiagnosis of a, ser of a serious nature? Okay, a couple of hands going up. And some, and I, some of you, I know your stories, so you know what I'm talking about today. It can be dangerous. Well, I want to give you a little parable as we, as we start out. Just imagine that you need to see your physician. You have, you're having terrible, terrible headaches that just will not go away. And so you go to the doctor's office. You sit down in front of the doctor. Now, full disclaimer, my wife is, a, is in the medical field. I have the utmost respect for medical professionals. So please do not misinterpret what I'm saying as a general distrust or anything like, like that. I want to give you a hypothetical situation. You go to the doctor and you have a, a, just these headaches that won't go away. So you go through all the questions and they take your blood pressure and you know, you, you, you've been in the waiting room for half an hour before it even started. You've gone through all that. You sit down and you say, and the doctor said, well, everything looks good. Are you having any difficulties? And you say, doctor, 
I just have these headaches, and I am concerned that something might be seriously wrong with me. So the doctor says, stick out your tongue. So you stick out your tongue. And he looks in your ears. Or she examines your eyes. And the doctor says, I've got good news for you. There is absolutely nothing wrong with you at all. And you go, that is good news. And you go on your way. In fact, the doctor told you, you are the perfect picture of health. And so you go your way. But the next morning, you wake up, and what have you got? You got you've probably found what do you got the next morning? You got a headache, and it's not going away. And while the doctor said, I'm okay, I'm doing just fine, everything's good, and so you just say, it'll go away. But weeks go by, and every day, the headache is still there. And you're starting to get concerned. So you go back to the doctor. You go again. And the doctor says, what can I help you with? Say, doctor, I'm just still concerned. The headaches aren't going away. Oh, he says, she says, the doc says, listen, there is nothing wrong with you. You're doing great. Yeah, but, but doctor, then why do I have these headaches? I'm just worried something. Oh, no, you need a better perspective on yourself. You need to stop getting so down on yourself. You need to just put a smile, but, but doctor, okay, so you go home, but the headaches don't go away. You come back for a third visit, and, the, and you say, doctor, there's just something wrong. There's still something wrong, and the doctor says, well, listen, I'm telling you, there's nothing wrong for you, but if you're complaining about the pain, let me do this. Let me give you this bottle of pills. Now you're like, what's he got? This is just ibuprofen, don't worry, all right? But the doctor says, let me give you some heavy-duty painkillers. There's really nothing seriously wrong with you, but let me give you these painkillers. And every time, every time the headaches come, what do I want you to do? Pop one of these. And so the next day, the next day, you take out the painkillers, you, you pop one for the headache. You're like, oh, I'm feeling better. That feels good. But the next day, what happens? The headache comes back. So you take another one. Pretty soon you're taking two, three, four, five of these, and the headaches don't go away. Meanwhile, the tumor in your brain is getting larger and larger and larger because you have been misdiagnosed. You've been mis misdiagnosed. You've been misprescribed. All you've been given is painkillers when the truth is you have something deadly growing inside of you. But that when you went to the doctor and the doctor said, you're fine, you took that as good news, didn't you? But in reality, it was the worst news you ever could have heard. It was a false sense of security. Now, some of you know where I'm going with this. Here in the, this chapter in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul gets to the heart of the true diagnosis of this world's problems. Now, can you imagine another scenario where the very first time you sit in front of that doctor, they say, there is something seriously wrong with you. There's something inside of you that can kill you. And you said, doctor, 
you're the biggest jerk I've ever met. How could you say there's something wrong with me? Well, the doctor would say, I'm only trying to what? Only trying to help. And sometimes, before we can get the good news, we have to be confronted with the bad news. We have to be confronted with the reality of our dilemma, with the predicament that we find ourselves in. And in this world today, friends, our world is spiritually sick. Men and women are born into this world with serious spiritual sicknesses. But do you know what? We're turning to the wrong solutions. I want to show you that this morning in the book of Romans. First of all, I want you to see here the spiritual diagnosis. Look with me. Back in verse number, we began in verse 16. Let's move down to verse number 17 together. In verse 17, the scriptures say this, for therein, that is in the gospel, in the gospel, the good news about Jesus, therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, that's a good, that's an uplifting positive verse, right? You can get God's righteousness. And how do you get God's righteousness? You get it by what? You with me? How do you get it according to that verse? Verse 17, you get the righteousness of God through what? Through faith. Well, that's good news. I can get God's righteousness through faith. The just shall live by faith. But now we move down to verse number 18. As we come down to verse number 18, there's some bad news. Why is Paul so excited about the good news of the gospel? Why is Paul so fired up to tell us that we can get God's righteousness? Because look at what verse 18 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now that's not, you know, when you go and to the card section at the grocery store and you pick out the cards and you look for the ones that are scriptural, that's not a text they usually put on the greeting card, right? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. But I want you to see the contrast of verse 17 and 18. So verse 17 was, the righteousness of God is revealed. The just shall live by faith. Why is that so important? Because currently, the diagnosis, the situation that the world and individuals in this world are in, the situation is that we are in trouble because all of humanity is currently living in a state under, the Bible says, the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. If you're following along, I'm on the inside page. We're talking about diagnosis and denial. First of all, we see here the spiritual diagnosis of the world. The fact is that the world, whether it's a... I, I hope you, you understood by introduction today, my point today is, is, is not to to come across as calloused or uncaring, the most caring thing a person can do is tell, tell someone the truth. The most caring thing the doctor could do in that scenario was tell me how sick I really was and not sugarcoat it and not gloss over it and not say, hey, you'll probably be just fine, but to tell me you are in grave danger. That is what the Apostle Paul is giving us. He's saying, listen, you and I, mankind, is under the wrath of God. Now, we need to understand this idea of the wrath of God. 
I think when we, we use this word wrath, I think some, for at least for me, maybe not for you, but for many people, I believe, some inaccurate descriptions come to mind. When, you, when we use the word wrath, you might be thinking of like, like this outburst of rage, like this uncontrolled anger, just this, this you know, the wrath and terror and, and this uncontrollable outburst of anger. That's not what the wrath of God is, though it is terrifying. Don't, I, I don't want to diminish it. But it's not a sense of him being out of control. You see, when we look at the righteousness of God and the wrath of God, we are looking at two sides of the holiness of God. You see, when we say that God is a holy God, that means he is so perfect, he is so unlike us, he is so righteous and just and loving and always does what is right. Really, when you think of that statement, the righteous, that word, the righteousness of God, it's the statement that means that God always and only does what is right to the extreme, to the wonderful extreme, that God is perfect, and in him there is nothing evil, nothing sinful. God is the ultimate of everything that is good. But on the other side, that means that he is perfect justice, that no breaking of the law slides, that there is nothing, there is no impurity allowed. You see, we can't have it both ways. We can't say, well, I want a perfectly loving and good God, but then I kind of also just want him to turn his eye to the bad things that happen, the bad things we do. Well, what would that mean? That would mean that all of the wrongs that are committed in this world will never be vindicated. You see, the wrath of God is God's intentional and just judgment on that which is ungodly, that which is sinful. And the problem is, the most important news, the best news that you and I could ever hear is that we are in danger, but there is a remedy. We'll, we'll get there. But before you understand the remedy, you've got to understand the predicament, the dilemma. We're under the wrath of God. Well, why? Ethan, I just, that's an uncomfortable, that's an uncomfortable statement. I, I don't want to hear about being under the wrath of God. Why is that true? I, I don't understand. Why, why is God's wrath revealed from heaven? Well, notice two things in this verse. In fact, you might even find them. I don't, you can, we'll let the scripture teach itself this morning. Go ahead and look at this verse. What is it? What is it that God, there's two things that God's wrath, God's righteous and just and controlled anger is against. Those two things, according to the scripture, are what? It's revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Again, this is not me. This is the scriptures. Now, it is interesting to note it, does, it says the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I think it's unique, and you've all heard the statement that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. I'm thankful for the truth of that statement. The fact here is God's wrath is not per se, is not per se directed at the men and the women, but God's wrath is directed at their ungodly 
and their ungodliness and unrighteousness. The ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, if you're reading this kind of quickly, if you're going through this kind of quickly, you might think, all right, well, those two things are kind of like synonyms, right? Just two ways to say the same thing. Like, okay, you're ungodly and you're unrighteous. But they actually are not synonyms. They speak to two problems. We're getting a clear diagnosis of what is wrong with the world. If you've ever asked the question, why do bad things happen? In fact, I, I watched a video one time. Somebody answered that question. How many of you ever have asked that question? Why does God allow bad things to happen? Who's ever asked that question before? Yeah. And probably everybody else's hand should go up. Why does God allow bad things to happen? But by the way, those are some of the topics we'll be talking about as we do our Wednesday night series, Christianity Explored. So if you've got a friend that wonders about those things, we'll, an we'll answer them openly. Why does God? Romans chapter 1 begins to give us an explanation of that. So I watched a video once, and, they ex and I thought the explanation was great. The person said they used to ask that question, then they realized this. Well, what should God do? What should God do to stop all the bad things that happen? Well, the first thing that would help was if God just got rid of all the murderers in the world. That would help make the world a better place, don't you agree? Would the world be better with fewer murderers in it? How about none? I'd be all for that. Only half of you think that's a good idea. Okay, all right. So anyway, um, then, but that wouldn't be enough, would it? Would the world be a perfect place yet? No. Well, he'd have to go down and, um, you know, all, the, all, the, all of the, 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 the stealing, the, the thievery, the drug dealing, we've got to get rid of all that. But you see what happens the further you go down. Is the world a perfect place yet? No. Because who brings all the pain and hurt into my marriage at times? Me. Sometimes my wife, more often me. But if I'm going to have a perfect marriage, guess who can't be in it? Me. If I'm going to have a perfect world, guess what can't be in it? Us. Why does God allow bad things to happen in the world? Because he allows us to live. And he allows us to make choices. Now that's not, I'm not giving you the ultimate answer to that question. I'm just kind of planting a seed there. So don't, you, you might challenge that or something and that's okay. But my point is this, at least get your mind thinking in that regard. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, I said these words are not just synonyms. Interestingly enough, I used to think that, but when you study the word ungodliness, it literally means this. You might want to write it down. It literally means a lack of reverence for God. Ungodliness is a lack of reverence for God, a refusal to worship him, a refusal to submit to him. Unrighteousness refers to the outward actions that we commit. What's wrong with mankind? We have a broken relationship with God and a broken relationship with each other. Ungodliness toward God and unrighteousness that we commit among and, and really harm one another with. That's the diagnosis. It would, listen, it would be far easier for a pastor, be far easier 
for a pastor to stand up and say, you know what? All people are basically good. In their hearts, all people are basically good. In the culture that we live in today, that would be the most non-confrontational approach. That would, that would be, I'd be able to, people would, you know, there, and there are spiritual people that say that. And they, they get to go on Oprah. And they get to sell a lot of books. And they say, oh, everybody's really good. You just need to be true to yourself. But as nice as they sound, they're doing one of the worst and most diabolical things anyone could do. They're hiding the true diagnosis from you and from me. The Bible, the Word of God, reveals the true answer to what's wrong. And I had a coworker once say to me, I asked her, I said, Linda, do, do, you, do you think most people are basically good or basically bad? What do you think she said? She said, well, I think most people are basically good. I said, yeah, a lot of people think that. I said, well, let me ask you this question then. Why is the world so messed up? She, she couldn't answer that question. Because if people are basically good, you have no reason for why there's so much hurt in the world. But what we do is we look at all of the bad that others do, and we don't look at the wrong that we do. We only look at the good that we do. We see our own goodness and the sins of others. We're blind to our own, sinness, our own sin and overly aware of the good deeds that we do. And I'm just like you. There's a spiritual diagnosis, but as we move through the text, you'll notice this. There is a denial. There's a denial. How many of you ever know, known somebody that had a serious health problem, but they lived in denial? They just thought, you know what, it'll just get better on its own, and it didn't. That's the state of the world. Look down now at the end of verse 18. It says, the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Would you read this final statement of the verse with me? Ready, begin, out loud. Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Circle that word hold if you're, if you're taking notes. Circle that word hold. It doesn't mean hold like I'm holding on to something. It's more like the idea of holding something down or holding something back or the way a dam holds. It literally means, and this word is also accurately translated, you could say, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. They hold down. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What he's saying is the world is in an active state of denial. The world has the truth. Say, so, well, what do you mean the world has the truth? He'll explain that in just a minute. But he's saying all of humankind has the truth, but rather than embrace the truth, the natural position of mankind is to say, I hear nothing. I don't see it. I don't hear it. I'm going to hold back the truth. I'm going to censor the speech. I'm going to not go there. I'm going to not think about it. I'm going to suppress it. How many of you have learned in life that not thinking about bad situations doesn't make them go away? But with the most serious condition of all, not the state of our bodies, but the state of our eternal souls, 
The men and women that surround us today, for the most part, want no, they don't want to think about it at all. Let's just spend the day at the lake. Let's just turn on the television. Let's just go shopping. Let's do this, let's do this. But the last thing I want to talk about is the problem that I have because it makes me uncomfortable. So what goes on, the scriptures say? He explains this in verse 19. Because that which may be known of God. Did you catch that statement there? That which what? May be known. What I want you to see here is God is not hiding. God's not hiding. From the beginning of history, God has not been in the hiding business. God has been in the revealing business. God has been in the business of revealing and making himself known to humanity. Because that which may be known of God is manifest or displayed or demonstrated. Everything that, 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 well, not everything, but what you could know about God, what God has revealed, he has put it not even outside of you, but he has put it where? Inside of you. For God hath showed it to him. On to the next verse. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are, what's it say? Clearly seen. God is not hiding. He is making himself clearly visible. Clearly visible. In what? What does the Bible say? How is God making himself clearly visible? Through what? What's that? I heard it. Yeah. Through creation. Through the creation of the world. As we look at the world around us, as we look at the intricacy of the design of creation and the wonder of the, of the plant world and the animal kingdom, as we look at the wonder of science, as we look at the wonder of the, the masterpiece that is the human body, if you were to walk into a if you were to walk into an art gallery and you were to you were to look at a beautiful, beautiful sculpture, you'd look at that and then you'd come down to the plaque, and on the plaque you would expect to find what? What would you expect to find on the plaque of that sculpture? I heard it. What's that? A name. You'd expect to find the name of the, of the sculptor. But people look at our world today, and if you look at the plaque, they say, random chance, chaos, nothing. It defies logic because a God consciousness is planted in the hearts of every person. And in fact, what we have to do is in order to deny the existence of God, people have to take this, the truth and do what? What was the word? They have to suppress it. They have to hold it down. They have to suppress the truth because God consciousness is revealed through what theologians refer to here as natural revelation. So it says that there's so much that we can know about God just through creation. Verse 20, for the invisible things are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's a powerful statement right there. That as much as mankind, as much as humanity wants to deny, suppress, deny, say, I'm not really sick, I can't be a sinner, there's really nothing wrong with me, I don't even believe in God that way, I, I, I don't accept that, the answer is this, listen, 
even just by the voice of creation itself, no one has any excuse. There's no excuse. God has not hid himself. He's revealing the truth. We are just suppressing it. There's a diagnosis and there's a denial. Now we move to the the second part. Not only diagnosis and denial, but there are symptoms and solutions. What are the symptoms? If the world is truly sick with what is described as ungodliness and unrighteousness, what are the symptoms of this illness? Look, look at what it says here in verse number, uh, in verse number 20, 21. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Do you remember? This is a description of that word we looked at earlier, that word ungodliness, lacking a reverence for God. What I want to show you here is there's a progression. First off, a lack of reverence for God, the ungodliness, leads to idolatry. Here's what happens. This is the story of humanity. It says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. They say, okay, there's some power out there. But rather than submit themselves to him, rather than us being thankful for creation, it says here that neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now notice what happens in verse 23 and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an what? What's an image? A statue. It's a sculpture or a carving of a false imagination of deity. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination. It says they became fools... It says that they made God into an image like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. You say, I'm struggling to understand that. Let's simplify that a little bit. They say, okay, there's a power out there. I, I cannot be all there is in the universe. So rather than submit myself to God, I want a God that I can imagine. Did you catch the word imagination in there? I want a God that fits my preferences. I want a God that fits my priorities. In fact, in fact, when I plant my crops, I want a God who will make it what? Make it rain. So what do I do? I carve a God of rain to please me for what I need. Well, when I go to battle against this tribe over here, I want a God who will give me a victory. So I craft a God of war. I want a God so that I can have a great big family and be the greatest one in my my tribal domain. So I need a God of fertility. This is the story of humanity. 
The story of humanity is it, it begins with the suppression of the truth and turning to idols, to gods of our own making. But we, in the 21st century, have become way more sophisticated than that. We don't carve moon gods and sun gods, although there is a return to paganism. It is happening around us, so I, I should be careful to say that. But among the intellectuals of our day, we don't craft a god like that. We just simply say, yeah, I believe in God, but this is what I think he's like. I think I'll carve a god, and I'll fashion God so that he always accepts me no matter what. I think I'll fashion a God who would never want anything except for me to be happy all the time. I think I'll carve a God, I think a car, I'll carve a God who lets me have sex with anyone I want to. I think I'll carve a God who says that I can be the map. Wait a minute, wait a minute. As we carve the God, who has become God? We have. This is the original sin of mankind in the Garden of Eden. It's where Adam and Eve bought the lie, you will be like God. At its heart, that is what idolatry is. Tim Keller wrote about this in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and he says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. He goes on later to say, if I have that, then I will feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value and I'll feel significant and secure. The idols, that we're, we're really no different than ancient peoples. The problem is that there are symptoms. The first symptom here is that there's an ungodliness and it's an idolatry, but now look what happens next. So if ungodliness, a lack of reverence for God, leads us to make idols, here's the problem. Those idols lead to our self-destruction. Idolatry leads to self-destruction. You say, why is God's wrath revealed? God's wrath is revealed because he loves you and me way too much to just let us carry on with our self-destruction. God loves us way too much to just allow us to die of the disease of our sin. So he diagnoses the problem and he says this, your idols that, you, that promise you pleasure, your idols that promise you fulfillment, the idols that promise you meaning, they will actually bring you self-destruction. Look at verse number 24. Wherefore, because of this, they said they wanted idols, so God what? Gave them up. So God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. Do you see what happened there? God says, this is what you desire? You have rejected me? You desire this? You can what? You can have that. You can have that. Say, well, I don't like what God did. God did nothing except allow us, allow us to, to live with our choices. And he said, here you go. And look what's happened. And tell me if you don't see this happening in the world around us today. 
God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And then the self-destruction. Well, verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for God, for this cause, God, here we see it again. God what? Gave them up. Now, the self-destruction turns outwardly destructive. Self-destruction, we go from ungodliness to idolatry to self-destruction to the destruction of others. Verse number 26, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. He says there's that last statement there, it means there's an appropriate, there's an appropriate consequence to the wrong choices that they made. You see, a whole society turned to self-gratification and lust. When they couldn't have, when they couldn't have enough physical pleasure from their own uh, sex, they turned from their the opposite sex, they turned to their own sex, their life became completely consumed with self-pleasure even at the expense of others around them. And so what happens now, it gets worse. Verse verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God, again the third time, God what? Gave them over to a reprobate mind. Even their thinking, the thinking became, became corrupted. It wasn't, they weren't in their right mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled. Now look at how this this turns outward. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication. Just stop there because this passage talks a lot about sexual perversion. The number one problem with with, with fornication, with sex outside of marriage is this. Number one problem, and the reason that God condemns it is this. Sex was created not as a means of self-pleasure. Sex was created as an opportunity to display love to your spouse. That is the purpose and procreation. Sex was given not for me, but my sexuality was given to me for my wife. And my wife's for me. That is the purpose. But what happens in societies is sex becomes all, because we're in an idolatrous world, the world has always been idolatrous, sex becomes all about where I can find pleasure. And it hurts other people. It damages other people. People say that, people say that, well, no, this is, if if it's two consenting adults, no. That's not how it works. That is not the morality. But our culture has reframed morality when we get out of, see, what you're doing is when you sleep with someone that is not your spouse, you are defiling the image of God that that person was created in. You are sinning against someone else. It's not just you. And sexual perversion is one of the evidences 
that people have gotten further and further and further away from the truth, that the truth has been suppressed, suppressed, suppressed. You say, Ethan, I don't really like what you're telling me. I'm sorry, but I can't be that doctor in the story at the beginning. I can't tell you, hey, everything's fine. Just take one of these. You feel that, the, you feel that your life's not good? Just take another pill and pop a pill of spending, maybe a little covetous pill. Why don't you pop a little sex pill and fulfill yourself? You'll feel good. Why don't you, why don't you uh, uh, pop that pill of covetousness? Why don't you uh, pop that pill of envy or lust or desire? Why don't you take that? Because in the moment, it'll make the pain go away. In the moment, the money will make you feel a little bit better. In the moment, everything will be good. But when you wake up tomorrow, when you wake up tomorrow, you'll be withdrawing and the hurt and the pain and the trauma will still be there. You can read the rest of the passage. But let me tell you this. Maybe 21st century Western civilization, maybe America, it's time to see a different doctor. Maybe it's time for a second opinion. Maybe it's time, and I have just the recommendation. He's known as the great physician. He's never, he's never misdiagnosed. In fact, he invented the procedure. He's performed it millions and millions of times, and he's never lost a single patient. And he is the good shepherd, the great physician. He is the doctor, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the one. He is the good news. But you see, Jesus doesn't sound like such good news until you understand how grim and how dire and how destructive and how deadly the diagnosis is. Other people will say, well, why don't you just take a little bit of religion, take a little religion pill, take a little church pill, take a little prayer pill. It doesn't work that way. You don't need a pill. You don't need a treatment. You need the cancer of sin extracted and removed. You need a transplant by Jesus himself. It's the only thing. That is the good news. And the good news is this, that the just shall live by faith. There is absolutely nothing you have to do. There's no way you can earn it. I hope you saw from the passage, I hope you saw from this passage that, that we are completely broken. We are completely broken. What could we have to offer him? In Mark chapter 2, I think Kayla's got that one ready. Mark chapter 2, Jesus says this. Jesus says, they that are whole have no need of the physician. You might be here today and you might be listening today and you might say, Ethan, that's an interesting story, but I'm okay. I'm a pretty good person. I've been religious my whole life or I'm pretty well educated, I've got all these things, my life is pretty good, I'm okay. Jesus says, okay. And he says this to people that are Pharisees. He says, listen, if you're okay, then you don't need me. If you're okay, you don't need me. I didn't come for people that think they're okay, Jesus said. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Christians or saved people, if you want to use that term, if we have a proper understanding, we don't view ourselves as better than anyone else. 
We just understood our predicament. And we got the right diagnosis. And we turned to Jesus who could save our souls. It's all about him. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this wonderful news that anyone who sees themselves as a sick sinner can come to Christ and be made righteous by Jesus. That is the gospel. Let us be a people who understand who we were and who Christ has made us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we come to a time of prayer? Believers, if you're already a believer in Christ, if you're already a Christian, just be encouraged this morning by the gospel. Pray for opportunities to share Christ with people around you who are in the same predicament you were in. Pray for God to give you boldness and wisdom and how to speak and how to share the faith. And oh, give God praise and thanks for the glorious good news. But if you're here today and or you're listening today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, I hope you see this, this morning, and I say this with all love and compassion, but I, I, I must speak the truth, the truth of God's word. If you've never received Christ by faith and faith alone, you are in the most dangerous position you could ever be in. You say, but, but Ethan, my parents told me this, or my pastor told me this, or my teachers told me this. Or I, 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 can't, I don't know what to tell you about any of that. All I can tell you is what God said. And God said that without Christ, without Jesus, you and, and I are lost. We're lost. But there is hope in turning to Christ. Would you right now in this moment bow your heart to the Lord? In this moment, would you say, Jesus, thank you so much for dying for me. I know that I'm a sinner and I ask you to save me. Would you give your heart to Christ today? Would you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone? Pray to him. Receive him right now. Tell him your faith is in him. And if you made that decision today, please let me know. Send me a message or catch me privately. Say, you know, Ethan, today I receive Christ as my Savior. Let's just have a time of quiet prayer and reflection as Deborah plays. We prepare to conclude the service. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, Lord, the great physician who came to call 
the sinners to repentance, Lord. We thank you for the salvation that you freely offer us. God, help us to be challenged by what we heard this morning and help us to, Lord, be amazed at the grace that you've given. In Jesus' name, 